sad I missed all of that fun out there. Um, but we did climb a mountain. Did you know that if you go down by the stables, you hit a, a creek, and then there's an abandoned, like, uh, old tubing run? And my five-year-old and I looked at that, and that was the mountain that I told him he would climb when he would get here. He would climb a mountain. So we climbed a mountain, which was great. Um, I know you're tired. I was thinking, okay, what can we do? Tonight we've got a great topic, and I know you're tired and you're exhausted, but again, what are we trusting in? We're trusting in the reality of a word that's uncaged, and we're trusting in the reality of an imperishable seed that actually has divine life and divine power in it. So we're not trusting right now in how we feel, and we're not trusting right now in the condition of our own heart, because you and I cannot generate the life uh, the passion, the faith. But when the word hits us, it unleashes all of that on you. Okay? So that's what we're looking at. But before we do so, I think we need to warm ourselves up just a tad. Do you want to hear the best scary story ever? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know you do. Who said no? Scare, like scaring someone. Yeah, not, not like a conjuring type thing. But I mean like really, really scaring someone. I was probably your age. And my dear friend and I, we both moved into Hartford, Connecticut at the same time. Him from Ohio, me from Houston. Our parents really got close, and we got close. And he was a basketball player. I was a wrestler. He had a, he had a basketball game, uh, and he needed to go to the locker to get his stuff. And we said, hey, why don't we meet at the local McDonald's? You know, because they had one between the towns, the only one in like three towns in the New England area. And uh, his parents were gone. And my other buddy, Tony, and I said, let's go scare Barry at his own home. So he says, I gotta, he told us, I've got to go get my stuff. I've got to go let the dog out. And then I'll meet y'all at McDonald's. So we park our car around the corner. And we get into his house because we have a key. We get into our house. And they have a kitchen set that's like, it's one of these islands in the center so if you had the door to the garage, you'd come in here, and you'd walk in. There'd be a den here, and there'd be an island or a barrier. And we sat there and played that old Mattel football game. <laughs> Do y'all even know what that is? Do you remember yeah, that, yeah. Sam? Oh, yeah. You know, you go. we played that thing for 30 minutes, 40 minutes. We're like, is he coming or not? And finally, we see the, the headlights go through the deal, and we click the game off, and we get ready, and this is what we did. Remember that barrier? He comes into the door, and it was really quite funny because he has a dog named Tammy. It's this little dog. I, little dogs don't count as dogs to me. They're cats. And he comes in, and he goes, Tammy, oh, Tammy. Hi, Tammy. And we are like, right? 
And then he walks in and he gets right parallel to us and we jump up and we go, ah! Y'all. Do you know when people go like this when they scream in the movies? That is for real! He goes, ah! At first nothing came out. It was... And then he goes, ah! And he screamed. And he screamed. And he screamed. Long enough for me to look at Tony, for him to look at me and go, oh no, we just did something really bad, right? And he, he's still doing this and he's still screaming and, and, and I, I couldn't take it anymore. I go, Barry, it's me, it's us, it's Jeff and Tony. And then he turns around and he runs into the other room. And we hear something moving, and he picks out a golf club and he <laughs> through the whole house. That's the best part of the story. And I mean, we're running up the stairs, and he goes, "I'm gonna kill you!" I mean, just, oh my word! But I, uh, at his wedding, I told that story to all his little college friends. Oh, it was. <laughs> The best. Okay, shall we transition? Is it hot in here? Or am I hot? Do y'all feel like sometimes you're breathing through a straw? Like sucking air through a straw? Whew, sometimes that happens to me up here. All right, here we go. Um, John 17, 17 through 19 is our text. Do y'all know who George Whitfield is? Okay, he was a leader of the... the a spiritual awakening called the first spiritual awakening, and it was a massive, um, it was a massive movement of God that generated an incredible interest in Christianity, for those who were uh, unchurched and those who were churched. The gospel started penetrating and hitting and renewing people in the church. Jonathan Edwards went to a place I didn't even know this place when I was there because I what. I wasn't a Christian until my sophomore year. He went to Enfield, Connecticut, and he preached on justification. And literally, a revival broke out in the whole church to Christians. Christians got awakened by the gospel. The church got awakened by the gospel. And those that were not churched got reached by the gospel in massive ways all over Western society. That's called the Great Awakening. Well, he was a leader, and he's considered one of the greatest preachers in all history. Powerful, passionate, uh, and riveting. Uh, in 1743, he and his wife Elizabeth had their first child. It was a son, and he was so overjoyed with his son. And, and almost immediately after having his son, he started having these strong impressions from God that his son was going to be this great preacher that God was going to use greatly to bring people to himself. When his son was baptized, he preached a sermon and said how his son would grow up to be a great preacher of the everlasting gospel. Because of this strong impression, he named his, his son John. And John, after John the Baptist. After the, the baptism, cynics sneered because of his prophecies, but he ignored them. But tragically, at only four months old, his son died a seizure and they were absolutely devastated 
He goes on later to talk openly about how wrong he was, to count his inward impulses and his feelings as equal to God's word. He said, I misled a lot of people. Jonathan Edwards tried to warn him, his friend, but he didn't listen. Tim Keller in his new book said this, Whitfield had interpreted his own feelings, his understandable and powerful fatherly pride and joy in his son and hopes for him as God speaking to his heart. Harry Stout was his biographer and said that he had turned his son into an idol. He said that Whitfield wanted so much to have ministry success that he equated it with his own value, his own worth, and his son bore the burden of his need to justify his existence. And Whitfield came to understand that he started equaling his impulses and his feelings and his intuitions and how things moved in his heart as being equal to God's word, right? When I read that about Stout, I said, gosh, that makes so much sense about this quote that's so famous about Whitfield. Whitfield said that the last idol in the human heart is self-righteousness. And quote, he said, the last idol taken out of the heart is the idol of self-righteousness. God wants you to know him. He wants us to know him. But how? With clarity in the mind, understanding in the mind, light in the mind, and realness, experience, heat in the heart. But here's the question of the text. How do you get that? How do you get clarity in your mind? How do you get a vivid experience of God in your heart? How does that happen? The answer's in our text. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. All right, John 17, we're going to look at 17 through 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, you might have in in the ESV. The actual translation is probably better as by. So sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate, or the original language, sanctify. So three times sanctify has been used here. So it's a big deal. So I sanctify myself so that they also may be sanctified by truth. The word of the Lord. Oh God, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. We ask that you would give us clarity to the mind, give us realness to the heart. Would you write this passage on our hearts and on our minds? Would you enable us all to hear, to see, turn our ears into eyes? And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, this has historically been called what? Ah, thank you. The structure's easy to follow, right? One through five, Jesus prays for who? Great. Six through 19, who's he pray for? 20 through 27, who's he pray for? Okay, so here's what we've done so far. What's the big idea of the whole John 17? What's the big idea? It's found in verse three. Look at it. What is it? Yeah, what's it, what is eternal life? Knowing God. That's it. Or it's... Oh, it's not there anymore. 
in dependence, right? The theme, knowing God. That's the big idea of the whole passage. And that's knowing God how, though? What's the Scottish theologian said? We are to know God like what? An intelligent? The intelligent part is what? Clarity in your mind, understanding. The Puritan would say light to your mind. The mystic part's talking about what? The heart. Realness, experience in your heart, right? So we must become an intelligent mystic. That's the first thing we did. Then we looked at knowing God in the world, though, and, and how we have such a complicated confusing relationship with the world. Are you supposed to escape the world? Embrace the world? Do both? That's what we looked at, what, two nights ago. Then last night we looked at knowing God with both awe and intimacy. Look at verse 11b. Look at how Jesus addresses God. Holy Father, holy. So no God with awe. Father, no God with intimacy. Today we look at how you do this. How do you know God like this? How do you know him with clarity in your mind and realness in your heart? And the answer is found in 17 through 19. Richard Sibbs is a Puritan, and he's the good kind. Now, those of you that really, you know, you start getting Reformed theology, and you get real excited about the Puritans. There are good Puritans, and there are bad Puritans. Richard Sibbs, read everything about him. He's a good one, so read him. Uh, he lived in the late 1500s, 1600s. You know who he, what he was called? When he would preach, he was called the sweet dropper. Because when he would preach, sweetness would come out of his messages and bring comfort and healing and restoration and courage and energy to people because he preached the gospel, the grace of God, with such vividness and such power and such realness, right? The people of England actually called him the heavenly Dr. Sibs. He says this, measure not God's love and favor by your own feeling." The sun shines as clearly in the darkest day as it does in the brightest. The difference is not in the sun, but in some clouds which hinder the manifestation of the light thereof. What is powerful enough to blow the clouds away in your life so that you see with clarity the wonders, the realities of the sun and you feel deeply its warmth what is powerful enough to do that verse 17 sanctify them by the truth your word is truth sanctify is used three times right so it's a big deal sanctify at its most basic elemental level is an adjective for God which is holy so whatever sanctify means, it means connecting you somehow to holy. Whatever it means to be sanctified, it's somehow to be connected to holiness. It's somehow being connected to a holy one, right? Now when we go to the book of Revelation, we see that God's throne is at the center of everything. In other words, what's the meaning of life? What, where do you find life? Where is life? Where's authorial life? Where's the origin of life? Contrary to Darwin, it's in a throne in the center of everything. And on that throne sits holy. Sits original holiness. And around the throne 
is a glassy sea. And outside the glassy sea is everything that's created. But the glassy sea is uncrossable. Nothing created can cross the sea. Because at the center, at the end, or the origin of the sea, sits the Holy One of God, who is ultimate reality himself, and he's nothing like anything in the world. And the sea lets everyone know that is unnavigatable waters, uncrossable waters. You can't touch this. It's like someone put police tape around the throne. Now the sea of glass, to be sanctified, is to sail the sea of glass. <laughs> to be sanctified somehow is to be connected or is to sail that infinite vast sea and connect to holiness, to the one who sits on the throne. The original Greek lexicon says sanctified means to be set apart for God. You know these definitions, but I want you to see them. Don't just spit them out. Yeah, holiness means to be separated apart for God. We're separated apart for God. Separated God, right? The sea of glass separates everything from God. It's uncrossable. So in order to be set apart for God, in order to be connected to this kind of God, this sea has to be crossed. And that is breathtaking because no one can cross it. So if God sanctifies you, somehow you sail the sea. Somehow you connect to God. Somehow you actually become your true self. Somehow you not only connect with ultimate reality, you connect with a meaningful life. To be sanctified is actually to have those clouds blow away so now the sun shines. What has the power to do this? What has the power to sail you across the sea? Jesus says there's only one power. There's only one answer, and it's not your feelings, and it's not your intuition, but it's the Word of God. Sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. And Jesus is praying that God uncages His Word on you, that God sanctifies you, that God sails you across the high seas. Many theologians today are being greatly impacted by a fresh look at what is called speech act theory. Do y'all even get that? Well, no, good night. You won't get that until you get to college. Um, sorry, you get sometimes. But you're a bright guy. You probably know about speech act theory. Anybody know about that? Heard about that? Literature, English, communications? Okay. Well, it is sweeping the theological world, not because it's new and innovative, but because it's been old and it's been around for a long time, but sometimes it gets rediscovered. Some theologians that are kind of putting it out afresh again, you might have heard of, uh, Graham Goldsworthy, Kevin Van Hooser, Michael Horton. Basically, it's this. 
Speech act theory is saying that our words do more than just convey information. Our words do something. Our words accomplish something. Our words get things done. God's speech and God's actions are the exact same thing. To come in contact with the words of God is to come in contact with his active presence in the world. To come in contact with the words of God is to come in contact with God himself on the move. That is unbelievable. The lion just got out of the cage. The Bible is not a Christian handbook. Please, please, if I can just say it to to those of you that are about ready to be on your own, about ready to be in college, about ready to be major, major players in the church. Please do not treat the Bible like it's a Christian handbook for living. It's not. Don't treat the Bible like it just disseminates spiritual experiences and and spiritual information and morality plays and character studies. It's not. The Bible is God speaking. The Bible is God on the move. The Bible is God working and God acting and God accomplishing and God reaching and God renewing and God restoring. The Bible is unleashing heaven on you. It's power like you've never seen. So, oh God, where are you? Why are you so far away? Why are you so distant? Why are you so detached from me? So detached from my struggles. God says, I'm not. I'm here. I'm at work. I'm in my words. Come to me in my words. Oh God, life is meaningless. Life is painful. I'm depressed. I'm angry. I'm fearful. I'm confused. I'm full of self-doubt. I don't know what to do. I'm stuck. And God says, I'm here. I'm at work. I'm in my words. Come to me in my words. Oh God, how do I change? Good night. I need people more than I love them. I use them more than I serve them. I want them to like me more than I actually care for him. I want to change. I want to grow. I want to have clarity in my mind about who you are. I want to experience you. I want to be sent. I want to have meaningful impact in people's lives. And God says, listen, I work. I act. I equip. I put back together. I forgive. I justify. I sanctify in my words. Come to me. In my words. God's word is his personal 
active presence in the world. For you, for your parents, for your annoying brother, for your lost friend, for the good times when you're in pleasant places and when you're in punishing places. His active presence in the world is in his words. It's almost like this, and I tell this to all the time. Can you do this? A train is coming. It's like the word of God is like a locomotive train. All your responsibility is this. And get run over. That's all you have to do. Is get exposed to his words. Alright. Notice how being sent into the word, verse 18, do you see that? Is the result of the sanctifying work of God's work in our life. So not only is God's words a sanctifying power in the sense that we actually come to know him it actually does something to us in such a way that it makes us a sent person. And what I mean by this is this. I don't mean just doing evangelism. We don't need more people that just do evangelism. We don't need more outreaches. And you're like, what in the world are you talking about? What I'm saying is we don't need more evangelism. We need more evangelistic people. We don't need more ministry. We need missional people. We need people who in their bones and their fiber have been sent. Do you see what's happening here in verse 18? One of the results of being sanctified, of the power of God's word being unleashed in your life, is you become a missional person. Now notice, God's word does that in your life. If you want to be a missional person, do you want to know God? Can you step in front of the locomotive and get hit? That's all we have to do. Ask God to work in your life. Get real specific. Oh God, will you work here? Oh God, will you work over there? Ask him to. But then don't just do nothing. Wait on him. But wait on him in the word. Go to the word now. Oh, God, will you work on this area of my life? Now, step in front of the locomotive. Go to the words to have God's active presence unleashed on you. Go to his words because his speaking and his acting are the same thing. Go to his words because where his word is, he is active on the move. I've been doing active ministry, evangelism, discipleship, some way communicating, teaching, preaching, shepherding hearts, counseling for since I was a sophomore in college. That's 30 years now. <coughs> so here's my personal experience. When God's words move and work on me, I become a missional person. And wherever I've seen God's words work and move in another individual, they become a missional person. Timothy Ward, he's the author of Words of Life, he says this, to encounter the words of Scripture is to encounter God in action. 
So the book is not information. The book is the active presence of God in the world. All right. I want you to look at all the action. Do you see verse 19? What's the basis? How do you know that when you go to the word of God that it's actually that kind of power, that God is on the move, that he's active? How do you know? How can you be guaranteed? Look, at, look, look what's going on here. Jesus says, And for their sake I consecrate or sanctify myself that they may be sanctified by truth. So if you have the word of God and it unleashes the lion, right, the uncaged word, why and how does that happen? Because there's someone, the perfect one, the hero one in all of creation, who set himself apart in such a way that it was so powerful, it literally released heaven. <coughs> and so now these words are his words, his wonders, his work. Jesus sailed the sea of glass. But he sailed it from the wrong direction. He didn't try to go to the sea of glass. He sailed from the sea of glass. Jesus sailed from the land of holy to the land of unholy, to messy, messed up people. And that's why he sanctified himself, because to sanctify himself means is that he set himself apart to represent you. His whole life and his whole death was a substitution, which means I'm going to, I'm picking on Joel, but I've been picking on him because he's good to pick on. Um, Jesus says, I'm going to take Joel's place and live the life that he should have lived, but doesn't. I'm going to love the spouse, my spouse, the church perfectly because he doesn't love Andrea perfectly. And I'm going to resist every sin that comes my way because he doesn't. I am setting myself apart, sanctifying myself in such a way that his life is now my life. And my death is now his death. I'm going to sail the sea of glass to him and bring him across the sea. So when you read the Gospels and you see the sanctified life of Jesus, you're watching your obedience in action. You're watching your perfect life in action. You're watching your resistance to sin in action. You're watching your victory over the power of sin in action. You're watching a death that, that became your sin and all the misery that goes with it, all the depression and all the fear and all the anxiety and all the exhaustion and all the nastiness that's tied up in it. He took it in action. It's gone from you. So go to his words. Because Jesus is the word. 17 years ago, my dear friend Barry and his wife, Julie, with their unborn daughter, missed a connecting flight at GFK for Switzerland. Um, they were put on Swiss Air Flight 111. 
The day was September 2nd, 1998. We'd been in Waco one month. That's when I got the call. I could not understand what the person was saying on the other end of the line because they were sobbing and screaming. It was my mom. And she's best friends with Barry's mom. And I could make up two words. Barry and Crash. I was just playing this church. And I, I... Swift, Swiss Air Flight 111 hit the cold Atlantic so hard it shook the homes on the coast of Nova Scotia. Killed every person on board, 229 people. A year later, a fisherman caught in his net an object and they pulled it out and it was a Bible and it was Barry's Bible and it was one of those snap Bibles with a tough outer core and you snap it shut. It was unfazed. It was untarnished. It was in perfect mint condition, sitting at the bottom of the sea for a whole year and survived a crash, a violent, violent crash into the ocean. The news media picked it up. The whole town, his whole hometown, our hometown, we're all like, everyone is just struggling and is stunned by the discovery of this Bible and its mint condition. Everyone but Barry's mom. You know what she said? She said, of course it did, because God's words never fail. God's words never die. God's words are life itself. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Amen.